Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Um, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. Welcome to the latest edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Our program is supported by listeners coast to coast and around the world. I want to thank Del Leonard of Waterford, Maine for his support and Carol Pridgen of Blue Lake, California. If you can help, log on to my website at peterbcollins.com because we don't get any corporate support for this program. It comes from people like you. And coming up in the second portion of this podcast today, we're going to talk to the president of the California Nurses Association, Deborah Berger. They have 12,000 nurses ready to deploy to Haiti, not all at one time, but over the next few months. And as Deborah says it, they'll be there after the cameras are gone. And we're going to put out an appeal for you to help them, too, at sendanurse.org. But first, January 21st, 2010, will go down as a dark day in American history because our politics are going to change substantially. The Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four ruling with Justice Kennedy, once again the pivotal voice, have upheld what they call the free speech rights of corporations. And this is a stunning setback for those of us who believe in small-D democracy. And it will open the floodgates to corporate money, not directly to candidates. The court didn't change that. But the independent expenditure process will be wide open on an unlimited basis. David Cobb was the Green Party candidate for president in 2004. And he's an activist with Democracy Unlimited of Humboldt County on the web at duhc.org. We welcome David back to our program. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you so much, Peter B., and thanks for you modeling the kind of new media that we the people need to build the movement to take our country back. Well, and unfortunately, the Air America dream has crashed uh, on the very same day that the Supreme Court made this announcement, and it means that we have to redouble our efforts to build progressive media and infrastructure in this country. But, David, let me begin just by asking you, uh, without a loaded question from me, what is your reaction to this Supreme Court decision? Well, once again, the Supreme Court has sided with the ruling elite against the interests of the American people. The Citizens United versus FEC decision overturned whatever flimsy federal campaign finance reform laws already existed under the McCain-Feingold laws basically allows corporations to spend unlimited money in buying our elections. 
bottom line, the court has literally legalized corporate bribery of our elections. And to go even deeper, Peter B., let's be clear. This case was not merely about corporate money in elections or free speech. It goes to the very heart whether we, the people, have the ability and the right to actually create the society we want to live in. It is a blow not only to campaign finance reform advocates, it is literally as if American democracy itself has been bombed. This is like a metaphorical Pearl Harbor. Yeah. And David, I would just amplify your comment. Yes, it legalizes bribery, but it also uh, permits a kind of blackmail that corporations will be able to use over and over again. Now, all they have to do is take a congressperson or a senator into a room and say, do you know how much fucking money we have and how much we can use against you if you defy our interests? And certainly they will spend it at times. Uh, They're lining up to take out Barbara Boxer, senator here in California, and there are others who are in their sights. But, well, the right wing, it's a good point, and the right wing successfully did it even under the prior laws to Daschle. We all know that it was the uh, unrestricted corporate uh, independent expenditures that actually unelected Daschle. Whether you think that he was a great candidate or not, let's mm-hmm. just be clear, he lost that Senate seat as a direct result of using the loopholes of McCain-Feingold. And to underscore, in 2008, five billion dollars was spent in, in, in the presidential election alone. And mm-hmm. now the floodgates are going to be opened wide open even more. So yes, it's bribery. Yes, it is literally uh, facilitating a kind of corporate hijacking and corporate thuggery and corporate extortion, and it's all going to be legal. Mm-hmm. One of the other elements that I think is really crucial here is that in uh, uh, taking any limits off Uh, corporate uh, participation in candidate elections. They also made no distinction that I have seen, and let me acknowledge I have not read the 190 pages of the decision and the dissent, 180 pages, sorry. Uh, But my perception from all the news accounts that I have read and heard is that there is no distinction that these have to be American corporations. And we have many corporations that are nominally American, but they're chartered in Bermuda or in the Cayman Islands or somewhere else offshore. And this also permits subsidiaries of foreign corporations. Uh, Sony has been raised as an example, but uh, that's one of hundreds. And and so we, we really have the prospect here that all kinds of corporate interests can meddle in American elections. That's exactly right. <laughs> I, I wish I had something else to say or I could correct you. You are exactly right. And and so this raises all kinds of, of perspective problems because uh, we are really internationalizing or, you know, we're, we're removing domestic control from our own elections. There's no doubt. When I t- chose the metaphor of Pearl Harbor, it was intentional. It, this is an attack. And... Just to be clear, it's not a foreign attack. It is an attack by the multinational corporations, uh, many of which, most of which are based in the United States, but the entire multinational uh, corporate hegemony of the planet has basically bombed American elections. And let's just be clear, it was facilitated, aided, and abetted by the Roberts Court. 
Well, and I need to add to that because I think it's important for people to note that Justice Roberts and Justice Alito, their corporate leanings, their corporate bias, these were widely known, not at all a secret. It was very clear uh, from their, their backgrounds and even from the gentle discussions that occurred at their confirmation hearings. And the failure of Democrats to stop at least one of those nominations, to bork it, to use the verb from the 1980s, is something that we will have to live with for a long time. And I argue that uh, the problem is that they didn't want to challenge, even at that point, the interests of the corporations that are so generous to pay for their re-election campaigns. Peter, you've, uh, Peter you've, you've hit the nail on the head, and that's the reason why I'm so excited to be working with a, a broad, deep, grassroots network of national organizations and individuals who recognize that this case is not merely about campaign finance reform. It's about the judicial system and the legal system that is uh, basically stolen our democracy from us. We're taking a page from the Tea Party experience and saying we need to take the righteous populist outrage at the Wall Street bailout about Citizens United case, about how they have hijacked our government, but we need to channel it into progressive energy. You know, the Tea Party folks are right about their concern around Wall Street America and about corporate interest, uh, but there is a, let's just be honest, a very thinly veiled racism and anti-immigrant xenophobia associated with much of it. Well, the, the, the other... To amend, amend, at, at, we at the Move to Amend Coalition are channeling that into a progressive way for us to build a movement that is devoid of either of the two parties, it is a multi-partisan effort, and I'm excited to be sharing that information with you and your listeners. Now, I'll ask you a little bit more about that as we continue, but I, I first want to focus on the manner in which this, uh, this court, and these two justices in particular, Roberts and Alito, who were uh, very clear in their promises about uh, stare decisis and, <laughs> and talked about their deep respect for the precedence of the court, and they turned all that on its ear. They are the most activist judges that uh, we have seen in a long time. And that's a phrase that comes from the playbook of the right to demonize uh, judges who have ruled in favor of uh, more liberal policies or uh, on be, you know, in, in favor of more liberal uh, outcomes for defendants. And so we saw the Roberts court seize this. And then they delayed it until the uh, justice, the most recent justice, Sotomayor, was confirmed, where they had rehearings, uh, new oral arguments for the case. And then they, they brought it forward for this decision. And the decision that they've made has very little relevance to the case that was brought before them. <laughs> they, they took, they took a, a, an opportunity uh, that was maybe a crack in the door and uh, drove a Mack truck through it. You're right, uh, Peter B., and so it's e even deeper. Yes, they rejected stare decisis, the principle that uh, long-settled opinions uh, ought not to be uh, revisited by the court. Even beyond that, and even beyond their lies under oath at testimony that they had deep respect for stare decisis, they also claimed that they had deep respect for the legislative intent, that the judges should not, quote, legislate from the bench. You use the phrase, they are judicial activists, which they are, but let's really peel that back a little bit. They claimed every step of the way that philosophically uh, 
that they were opposed to the idea of judges replacing the political process with their own opinion. In this case and in many others, they have already demonstrated that that is not true. This is a runaway, renegade, corporate activist court. And the chief justice, who began with his confirmation hearings when uh, he was only going to be a justice and then got promoted because uh, of the uh, departure of uh, another justice on the court, uh, the the chief justice Rehnquist, uh, he... (laughs) He argued at his confirmation hearings and in his PR spin that uh, has evolved since then, describes himself as a guy who likes to look at the most narrow possible attack that they can make on a given case, and that that he's an incrementalist and that, you know, he's not a guy who wants to create law from the bench. Well, we have to take those as flat-out lies. Thank you for saying it like it is, Peter B. That was a lie. It's one thing to say, well, I've sort of changed my mind about this particular fact pattern or looking at the nuances of the law, I've come to a different decision. The reality is that uh, Justice Roberts lied about what approach he was going to take on the court as it relates to judicial restraint, as it relates to stare decisis, uh, as it relates to his commitment to true civil libertarian issues. Uh, And I think it's time for we the people to howl our outrage and channel that outrage into real action. And one of the other issues here that the court skirted, which some believe it may revisit in a future case and others believe may come through a legislative process, is the role of labor unions. Because in the previous decisions and the statutes that were in effect, there was a rough equivalency in the rights of corporations and the rights of labor unions. And now with the limits taken off corporations who have deeper pockets, uh, greater resources by far than the labor unions that represent less than 10% of the American workforce, uh, one of my colleagues who's an attorney uh, has suggested that one of the first agenda items uh, of legislative Republicans will be to take another run at their so-called paycheck protection legislation, which would require that each and every member of a labor union authorize the use of their dues-derived money for political campaign purposes. And this uh, was attempted as a ballot measure in California and fortunately defeated a few years ago. But this is a way to silence the First Amendment rights of organized groups of individuals. These are citizens, not the, you know, the artificial construct of a corporation. And so if any move is made to, uh, to limit the rights of labor unions to participate in candidate elections on the same footing as corporations, then we're going to see legislatively and judicially that uh, America will be made safe for rapacious corporate power. Well, that's right. And let's be clear. Did anyone think that America wasn't, uh, uh, or that corporate power needed the protection of the courts to begin with? Did anyone really believe that corporations were a repressed minority and that they weren't able to to uh, influence elections or our culture? I mean, I think that it's it's worth pointing out that there are legislative 
fixes that, uh, that we should be supporting, publicly funded elections. Let's turn the Republicans' proposal on its head and say, before a single dime of corporate money is spent on either PACs or independent expenditures, that you have to get a majority vote of your entire shareholders mm-hmm. uh, before the board of directors makes that decision. So there's lots of things that we can do at the legislative level, uh, and I'm throwing my weight and support behind those. Well, I certainly agree with you. I think we, if even before any attempt at uh, limiting the role of labor unions, I would like to see efforts to limit the potential uh, for corporations to make these moves without shareholder approval. Uh, because I, uh, I, I have a limited portfolio, David, but it offends me when companies that I hold shares in spend money to interfere in a political process uh, against my wishes and my judgment. I want them to stay out of politics altogether. And I agree with you, and that's another example of the difference between corporations, which exist merely to accumulate power, wealth, uh, and there's a role for corporations, to be sure. But there's a fundamental difference between a for-profit corporation and a labor union that is a group of individuals who have organized together merely to protect their rights as workers and to advocate specifically for themselves as workers. Now, David, let me offer an example here because I referenced California Senator Barbara Boxer. She chairs the Environment Committee. She is trying to promote the cap-and-trade legislation to address climate change in the Senate, and it's stalled there. She's got uh, Senator Inhofe and the Republicans who uh, uh, boycotted uh, critical hearings of her committee uh, and, and don't participate in the process. They're simply obstructionists. And so let's take the oil and gas industries and the so-called clean coal industry. They will be able to come into California, and without coordinating with the opponents, the Republican nominee, <coughs> excuse me, um, they will be able to spend unlimited amounts of money attacking Senator Boxer in any way, shape, or form that they choose. It could be issue-related. It could be uh, diving into dumpsters to try to find embarrassing personal information. But there will be no restraint on their ability to attack her. And she is left with uh, raising money from individuals, still subject to limitations of $5,400 per cycle, and some political action committees, and perhaps some uh, unlimited spending by labor unions, which, of course, couldn't come close to matching the resources of an array of corporations against her. This is incredible. It is incredible, and that's exactly what's going to happen. The, uh, the corporatists and the militarists are already uh, shouting with glee about their plans to not only attack Barbara Boxer, uh, but even Dennis Kucinich, uh, Maxine Waters. Virtually every progressive member of Congress right now is, has a big bullseye on their chest. And corporate America is taking aim. And again, we the people have got to mobilize to fight back. And David, it is interesting to see um, how well-informed many average citizens are in this country. Because in the 24 hours since the Supreme Court issued its ruling on Facebook, on websites, uh, I've seen a number of of, uh, groups sprout almost instantly to try to defend our rights. And I'd like to ask you to take a couple of minutes here to identify for us what you see as the viable options to counter this draconian Supreme Court ruling. 
Again, if, you, if folks are interested in legislative actions and they're most concerned about campaign finance itself, I would strongly recommend folks look at the, the efforts of public campaign, or uh, yes, public campaign and their efforts at publicly financed elections. But if you want to go even deeper and be part of a movement that is actually rebelling not just about campaign finance abuses of corporations, but the entire social, political, and economic systems that support and protect corporations when they rape our environment and exploit workers uh, and try to uh, corrupt our elections, then go to the website movetoamend.org because that's an effort of grassroots people and national organizations calling to amend the U.S. Constitution to make it clear once and for all that corporations are not persons with any constitutional rights. Corporations can never legitimately go into court and try to overturn any law that attempts to control their harm or, or their abuse or their conduct. So movetoamend.org is, I think, the most promising, most exciting, and most systemic response to the Citizens United decision specifically and corporate America generally. Now, David, you're a tireless activist and a very optimistic guy, but uh, without uh, throwing cold water on that, we have to acknowledge that amending the Constitution is extremely complicated, difficult. You either have to get the the legislatures of two-thirds of the states to pass it to call a constitutional convention, um, or I I guess there's one other mechanism that can be used. But uh, my question is, based on your knowledge of the Supreme Court ruling, would corporations be able to use their same new uh, so-called rights uh, that were attributed to them by the court in this decision uh, to spend unlimited amounts of money to campaign against a constitutional amendment? Of course. Now they can use unlimited amounts of money to campaign against anything. So anything that is attempted is going to be subject uh, to corporate money coming against you. But, Peter B., let's just take one step back and remember that there was a time in this country when not only could women not vote, but they could not own property in their own name. They could not enter into legal contracts. They literally were property themselves. Their entire legal relationship and existence under the law uh, was only a function of their relationship to their fathers or their husbands or their brothers, the men in their lives. In about two generations, that enti- and that was not only the law, it was the culture, it was society, it was the way it was, and anybody who tried to question it was considered naive and unrealistic or a dangerous anti-American or a, an anti, uh, anti-God or just a loon. And in two generations, that fundamentally shifted. And laws changed, and the Constitution was amended. And let's be clear, the effort that culminated in the 19th Amendment was a critical, tactical approach taken by those women and the men who supported them that changed culture, that then changed law, that then ultimately amended the Constitution. And frankly, if we're going to take ourselves seriously about both the problems that we are faced in this country, the depth of the problem, how serious it is, it's time for us to act in a commensurate level of seriousness. And I think the folks at movetoamend.org are doing just that. All righty. Well, I'm certainly going to support it, and I urge my listeners to do so as well. I know you're very busy, and I just want to ask you two more questions, David Cobb. 
from your knowledge and interpretation of this decision, what kind of ripple effect will there be to some of the states uh, like Arizona that have adopted some uh, pretty important uh, uh, campaign financing reforms? Uh, will this uh, trickle down to the state level, or is this ruling limited to the federal campaign level? It actually uh, applies to both uh state and local elections because a First Amendment right uh, cannot be infringed upon by uh, any level of government, either state, local, or federal, uh, by virtue of the 14th Amendment. So uh, it actually impacts elections at every single jurisdictional level. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then finally, uh, did this decision, in your opinion, enhance the uh, concept of corporate personhood? Not only enhanced it, it was it is premised upon it. And again, that's the reason why the move to amend effort is so important. Because without the the legal basis of corporate personhood, not only would there be no basis uh, and, and uh, reason for this decision, but there would be no reason to to overturn any campaign finance laws based uh, on First Amendment rights of corporations, nor could courts overturn efforts to to protect the environment or protect workers or the, the safe and healthy of consumers. Peter B., thousands, literally thousands of laws get overturned at the local, state, and federal level based on this doctrine of corporate personhood, and probably tens of thousands of laws never get passed because legislators are cowed and scared of the fact that their their efforts will be overturned in court. The chilling effect that corporation, corporate personhood has on the ability of we, the people, and our elected representatives to govern appropriately is stunning. Yeah. David, what would you like to add before you have to go? I know some of your listeners probably don't have access to the web, so if you'd like to get involved, give us a call at Democracy Unlimited of Humboldt County at 707 269-0984. Let's conspire and collaborate to take our country back. David Cobb, thank you very much for everything you do. I appreciate you joining me today. Thank you so much, Peter B. And I do want one last shout out. Listeners, remember this, that this new media, this people's media is brought to you without the filters of corporations. So if you enjoyed this broadcast, do like I do and donate to make sure that this tool is on the air and available to all of us. Thank you very much, David, and I do apologize for the F-bomb I dropped earlier, but uh, sometimes <laughs> sometimes strong language is appropriate, and here we don't have the censorship of uh, language that I used to have on the broadcast band. You Thank know, you. Peter B., my mama, my mama told me once that uh, profanity was uh, one of two things. If you used it inelegantly and too much, it just shows that you're ignorant and you don't really know how to express yourself. But if you use it as appropriate punctuation... Uh, and you use it at moments that only extreme outrage or righteous indignation calls for, uh, then you're actually using it appropriately. I'd say you used it appropriately in that circumstance. Thank you very much, David, and thanks to your mama. <laughs> much love. <laughs> All right, talk to you soon. Bye-bye. And to those I may have offended, the Peter B. Collins Apologia Chorus. Thanks to you.
We continue on the Peter B. Collins Show, sponsored by the Organic Wine Company. Now that you're eating organic, it's time to drink organic. Try the fine, earth-friendly wines imported by the Organic Wine Company since 1980. All you have to do is click on the link on my homepage at peterbcollins.com for a special introductory offer just for you. The earthquake crisis in Haiti continues. The official death toll is pegged at 75,000, but uh, may rise as high as 200,000 or more as they continue to uh, dig through the rubble. And uh, many, many people and agencies in the United States have responded, I think, in an amazing way. And people in old folks' homes are raising money. Uh, All kinds of people are doing what they can. And the California Nurses Association, National Nurses United, uh, have uh, recruited 12,000 registered nurses who are standing by right now to deploy to Haiti in the uh, ongoing future, not necessarily to all arrive at one time, but because this is uh, such a huge scale of a disaster, uh, there will be requirements uh, for uh, support and humanitarian aid and people to uh, help uh, try to uh, keep people alive and then help rebuild the uh, the area near Port-au-Prince and others that were devastated by the earthquake. Deborah Berger joins us. She's a president of the California Nurses Association and their new combined union, uh, National Nurses United. Deborah, welcome to the show today. Thank you. It's good to be on. Well, uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and I realize, too, that uh, you're you're all packed up, or at least some are, and uh, frustrated by the logjam at the Port-au-Prince airport. Uh, the, the seaport there is now partly reopened, and they're feverishly working to expand that. Tell us a little bit about the efforts of the RN Response Network, which is an ongoing function of uh, your union. Well, uh, we are uh, screening the nurses that have volunteered to make sure that we can put nurses uh, to the best use. Uh, We plan on deploying uh, trauma nurses first, uh, and uh, obviously we've had a huge response from the Haitian community, so the nurses that are uh, Haitian and speak Creole are going to be paired with uh, other teams of nurses that are going in. Um, so that they get a two-for-one. They get a nurse and somebody that can translate uh, Haitian Creole. Uh, the nurses are going in on their own time. They're uh, provo- doing using vacation time, um, any other kind of uh, own, their own leave. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've made a commitment that we're going to be there long after the cameras are gone. So it's going to be a long-term effort, just like uh, we did when we were in um, the Gulf states. We were there for over five or six months providing uh, nursing care. So um, we are um, going through the 12,000. That is going to take time to see, you know, what uh, skills the nurses have and um, make sure that they're sent in in a manner that protects uh, them and uh, they're able to provide care for their patients in a safe manner. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us about uh, just what your contingency plans are right now because you still are waiting for a green light uh, from uh, the people who are controlling the scene there, and that's now mostly the U.S. Marines, as I understand it. Uh, how are you communicating with them, and what have they told you about when you might be able to uh, start dispatching nurses? 
Well, the story, story seems to change daily as they are uh, finding out what's happening. Uh, we are working with multiple organizations, including uh, Partners in Health and Doctors with, Without Borders and uh, USAID, which is sort of a military uh, contingent. Uh, so we are trying to see whatever we can do to get the nurses in there. Uh, we've got contacts uh, both in the Dominican Republic and now, um, most recently today, in Cuba um, to try and see if there's a way that we can get nurses uh, through those areas to, to help with um, uh, triaging uh, injured patients. So um, every day we're trying to find a new inn, and we thought we had one um, where we were going to send nurses on the military uh, ship, and uh, it ended up that they were able to staff with uh, military, but they will be needing um, relief uh, for those workers, so we're still uh, working with the military on the, for the military comfort ship, so mm -hmm. we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, after Hurricane Katrina, they dispatched a couple of cruise ships to New Orleans, uh, as, uh, and, and I don't think they were really fully utilized, but it was uh, an interesting idea. And it, it seems to me that, uh, because I've actually been on a cruise in the Caribbean that stopped uh, in the Dominican Republic, uh, that uh, this would be a fairly easy way uh, to establish a, an offshore platform uh, that you could operate from. Uh, has there been any thought, I, I, I'm not expecting you to lease a cruise ship, but <laughs> has anybody looked at that as a, as a potential? Well, when I saw the uh, report about the cruise ship that did dock in, in Haiti, about seven miles from uh, Port-au-Prince, uh, I was outraged that they thought that somehow offloading 40 pallets of uh, supplies was an, a, a good enough excuse for, um, you know, fiddling while Rome burned over there, but um, setting up a cruise ship that isn't really set up for providing medical care really isn't necessarily the best way to do it, mm -hmm. um, because you have to have supplies, you have to have the doctors, the nurses, um, and it, it just, I don't think would work given the fact that um, there's so much trauma on these with these patients that you really do need uh, set up medical ships really to deal with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be a nice idea to house the homeless maybe, but, it, you know, where do they go? You know, they're on this ship. How do they get off? You know, yeah. the logistics. It's a good idea, but in trying to carry it out, it um, probably creates more problems than just providing care for patients. Well, and it's a mixed bag, but the nearest U.S. asset is the military base at Guantanamo Bay, which has a, uh, a long runway that can handle the big uh, cargo container uh, aircraft, and uh, it's a larger facility than just the uh, prison that we operate there. But it has a sordid history because we diverted Haitian boat people, uh, refugees there during the Clinton administration, and so I, I guess the Obama administration has just been uh, uh, kind of steering clear. There have been some commentaries in the media suggesting that Guantanamo be used, but to date I haven't heard of any uh, active interest in that. Well, uh, yeah, it, it w was the first thing that sprang into my mind because they have 
state-of-the-art medical facilities there, but I think probably uh, what would happen would be the, the political ramifications of, um, you know, having these refugees that need medical care mixed with the Guantanamo detainees, you know, and I, I'm not in that mix, but I sure wouldn't want to be in the middle of that while I'm trying to care for my patients. You know, mm -hmm. It seems like the best that we could do is set up the medical clinics like they're trying to do in, in Port-au-Prince, because that's where the people live, that's where they have their support if they have family support anymore. Um, and. Uh, leave it, get the supplies there instead of trying to take them to Guantanamo. It mm -hmm. seems, I mean, you know, it's one of those things, if we could just airlift Guantanamo over to Port-au-Prince, that would be great. But Yeah, and I, I do think it's within helicopter distance of, uh, of Port-au-Prince, but, yeah. uh, you know, that's, I guess, beyond our pay grade. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One of the current plans is to resettle 400,000 or more from Port-au-Prince into other parts of the Haitian portion of the island of Hispaniola. And uh, this is a, a, a major effort that uh, I, I read in one news account that there are only 2,000 tents available for the uh, presumed 400,000 or more uh, who might be placed there. And this could create uh, a, a real... Uh, problem in terms of controlling disease uh, because uh, sanitary facilities were already limited uh, on this island and uh, have been you know sharply reduced as a result of the earthquake and then when you try to take people to an under or undeveloped area and build a, a huge new tent city uh, that's a, a daunting task but it does speak to the need for an ongoing presence of qualified nurses who have experience in uh, disaster situations. And tell us a little bit about how you might be planning to address that. Well, right now we're just addressing trying to get in there and be able to supply, you know, supply nurses for, for the relief effort. Uh, in the long term, I think people really just need to sort of in the haste to try and solve a problem, you may end up creating more problems. So I think, you know, once once the dust is settled and we're able to really look at, at the situation and help prioritize, I think we could be of more use than going in and doing what we think uh, would solve the problem, but yet... Um, in the long term, not really leave the Haitian people with a functioning health system, with a functioning um, infrastructure. Um, so, um, you know, I, I honestly cannot even imagine um, what the future of Haiti is going to look like, except that I know that our nurses aren't going to make the situation worse. Mm-hmm. And what do you see as the, the prominent risks that come in the, the second phase uh, after we have, uh, you know, rescued as many people? And almost daily there's still miracle stories, and we know from our own experience in earthquakes in Northern California that as time goes on, the uh, uh, prospects of further discoveries uh, diminish sharply. Um, so once we get into the second phase where... Uh, we're beyond the, the critical medical issues. What do you see as some of the, uh, the risks or uh, disease uh, 
possibilities that you have to be prepared for? Well, there's once you've done the initial rescue and gotten people out and they've gotten whatever uh, trauma care they need, because there's a severe shortage of antibiotics, there's a severe shortage of um, uh, vaccinations, um, the the disease process itself, the infection process, uh, takes, you know, one to two weeks to really start taking over. So um, all of those um, victims that had amputations, that had head injuries, that had any kind of an open wound that got sutured, um, there is the very real possibility that that those wounds and uh, operation sites are going to become infected. Uh, women that uh, deliver children uh, are also at risk for um, postpartum infections. So, you know, there's a number of those, just the basic um, issues. But then also the diseases that are caused by, you know, the, the dead bodies that are still there, um, the cholera, the typhoid, the you know, and there's still malaria. Luckily, it's not the rainy season. That's the that's the only piece of luck out of the whole thing is that it is not the rainy season. So, um, the, and it the, is a tropical area. So, yeah, the rainy season uh, typically hits in May, and then it's followed by the uh, hurricane season. Yeah. So it's uh, we do have a window here where the weather should be mostly favorable. And that certainly does help because people can uh, live outdoors. And uh, do you know what the status is on on just basic supplies like water and uh, subsistence diet? Because we've seen reports of of people who still have not been able to find uh, access to critical emergency uh, uh, support. And that that is one of the things that uh, is keeping us from uh, being able to send nurses in is the fact that there is a shortage, a desperate shortage of water and food. Uh, so, you know, if we sent nurses in, that means that people that are there don't get the, the food and water they need. So... Um, we plan on bringing our own in. We've got, you know, water purifiers and things like that, but you can't even get the water to purify it. So that's, you know, the, the issue is that it's still sh- a shortage. Mm-hmm. And uh, Deborah Berger, tell us a little bit about what it costs to send uh, teams of nurses into Haiti. Well, if you go to our website, we've sort of figured it out. It's about $250 a day. Uh, for both the nurse and a patient to, you know, to sort of pair them up and uh, provide food and shelter and uh, support for, for for that pair. So um, we've we've gotten donations. People have been extremely generous in in wanting to make sure that we can send nurses. Uh, the good thing about um, our fundraising is that at least we're able to use the money for getting the nurse there and uh, the supplies that they need uh, because the nurses are donating their own uh, labor, which is uh, significant. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was interesting is initially after the disaster, the International Monetary Fund offered to extend uh, a, a new loan. Uh, Haiti already owes almost, uh, uh, what, I think it's... N- $900 billion or something like that. 
and uh, no, it's nine hundred million. Let me let me get that right. So they they said they were willing to extend a new loan of a hundred million, and then under pressure from uh, those who reacted, uh, they have now agreed to convert that to essentially a grant or a gift. Do you know if any of those funds will be available to help support efforts like yours? Uh, no, I don't. Mm-hmm. No, but it, it seems to me that they should have, you know, wiping that debt, you know, saying, oh, yeah, we'll renegotiate a loan for you. It's like, oh, thank you for nothing. I mean, what are they going to pay it back with? Yeah. You know, they've already paid a huge price for uh, a very poorly planned, um, you know, humanitarian um you know, relief projects for these people over the decades, and they've lined the pockets of many politicians, both in in Haiti and the countries where the aid was uh, sent from, and corporations. And my concern is that it's only going to continue to get worse. And um, if we don't do this right, if there's not enough oversight, um, many, many more politicians and uh, private contractors are going to get uh, wealthy off of the pain and suffering of Haiti. Mm-hmm. I'd like to invite my listeners to help in every way you can. Visit the website sendanurse.org and you can make a direct contribution to send nurses to Haiti. It costs about $250 per day per nurse. So if that's within your means, that's a figure that would be very welcome. Again, the website sendanurse.org. Deborah, is there anything you'd like to add to uh, our conversation here today? Other than the fact that uh, we're begging patients of the uh, the patients of the nurses to uh, bear with us while we're trying to uh, work out a way to get nurses in there, and uh, that we will be using all of the funds that are raised for. providing nursing care in Haiti, and um, it is going to be a long-term effort. So uh, long after the cameras are gone, the nurses are going to be there um, helping out. Well, and I appreciate the point you made in there that all the money raised will be spent on this mission in Haiti, because I'm uncomfortable with some of the aid groups, and at this point I won't name names just so I don't embarrass you, Deborah. Uh, But after the San Francisco earthquake and after Hurricane Katrina, We saw that some uh, well-known national relief organizations raised large amounts of money and then did not spend it all in the areas that uh, were affected. And, and, you know, I think that's not consistent with the expectations of the donors and uh, in some ways could be seen as deceptive. So I appreciate that uh, you're making very clear here that every dollar contributed will go to the purpose that uh, people intend. Exactly. Deborah Berger, one of the presidents of the California Nurses Association and the new National Nurses United. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Well, we usually end the show with happy trails. It didn't seem too appropriate today. As always, your comments are welcome. You can email me, peter, at peterbcollins.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>